morning, everyone. As Ethan said, we're, we've come to the conclusion of this series we're calling a spiritual audit. And the spiritual CPA that we've been using for the last five weeks is the Old Testament prophet of Malachi. And this spiritual audit was conducted 2,400 years ago, but its conclusions are still true of us today. In the opening statement, this is important to remind us every time we look at this audit, that God opens this audit by declaring his decision to love them and his choice also to love us. So God makes it clear that this audit is not about his love for us. That's already been settled. But then he presents four problems that we've worked our way through. The first problem that was true of them is also true of us is that he says, you're treating me with contempt whenever you offer me the, the leftovers of your life. He says, you, you wouldn't treat anyone else that you value in your life that way, but you're treating me this way. Then he says, secondly, you're, you're profaning my plan to bless the world whenever you break relational faith, particularly in marriage, in reference to that passage that Ethan just talked about. Then he says, you're stealing from me when you refuse to tithe. And then what we looked at last week, God says, you're saying harsh things against me whenever you are wondering whether there's enough to gain in the relationship with me. Now today, we're going to conclude this by looking at the question that's addressed at the end of the Malachi audit, and that is, why should we take this audit seriously? The answer is found in chapter 4, the last chapter of the book of Malachi. Verse 1 says, surely the day is coming. What day? Well, the day when we all stand before God and give an account for our life. The word day in this verse is capitalized because they all knew what this day was. It was called the day of the Lord. And on that day, we will stand before God, all of us, and we will give an account for the kind of life that we've lived. That day is described this way in Hebrews 4.13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So we've been talking about accounting, spiritual accounting, financial accounting. But accounting is not just a financial term. It is also a term that's used to evaluate, to add up and summarize the kind of life that we've lived. I think obviously one of the saddest events of this new year was the death of Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter, and seven others three Sundays ago. News of that helicopter crash broke during the third service uh, three Sundays ago. I heard about it right after the service was over. And like everyone, I, I found it hard to wrap my mind around it. So I went home that afternoon, and I watched the news for quite a while. Of course, there wasn't a lot of new information to report other than that a helicopter had crashed, and uh, they didn't know exactly how many, and there just wasn't much more to say. And so the news channels turned to what people thought of Kobe. And they used words like legend and loving father and generational talent. These are summary kind of words. And we do this kind of thing whenever we face the death of someone that we either care about or someone who is well-known like Kobe. And we try to come up with summary words, words that put a, a conclusion about the impact of this person's life. And the reason we do this is we know that it's, it's simply not enough for us to have lived. Our, our lives need to add up to something. They need to count for something that is really good, like loving Father. Now, the big question for all of us is, what is it that adds up to good in the eyes of God? Because he, of course, is the one that we will have to give an account to, not each other. 
not anyone else. One person, speaking of Kobe's legacy, said, I was there to witness the greatest day of Kobe's life. He said that day was when he scored 81 points in an NBA game. I wasn't there on that day, but that must have been an amazing day to be there watching Kobe do something like that. But as amazing as that is, I'm, I'm not sure that getting a round ball through a metal cylinder more than anyone else is the kind of thing that particularly impresses God, impresses us. It's fine, but I don't know that that's really the greatest day of Kobe's life. Now, I don't know Kobe. And so I cannot speak to his bottom line, and I'm not going to speak to that because I, I really don't know the man personally. But the question for us, as we're all you know, shaken really by that event, is what about our lives? In the last chapter of the book of Malachi, this audit, God tells us what to expect on that day. And four effects are described. On that day four effects will occur. The first effect is the priority effect. When that day occurs, there will be a shift in priorities. Now, every day belongs to God, so why is it that this particular day is referred to as the day of the Lord? Every day belongs to God. Well, it's not because suddenly this day now belongs to God. It's because of a shift that's going to occur in that day inside of us. And the shift is, what's, what's on the forefront of our mind will shift in that day. Now, we might think of God from time to time, but for the most part, what we think about most of the time is us and the situations that we're facing. But on that day, God will be the priority. God will take center stage. There will be really nothing else that anyone will be thinking about but God. Have you ever seen a police car right after you've broken a traffic law? I have. I did a legal U-turn one time in downtown L.A., and there was a police car right there. Or, you know, I've, I've been speeding, and all of a sudden I noticed the police car off to the side. Now, what, what occurs at that moment? Up to that point, had you been thinking about the police? No. <laughs> Furthest thing from your mind. Now what happens? Well, that's that priority effect. About all you can think about is that cop car. Are they turning around? Are they coming after me? Have they turned the lights on? Oh, they went past me. Whew, I'm free. So what occurs in your mind is suddenly something you hadn't been thinking about, wasn't a matter of concern at all, was now all you could think about. That's the priority effect. There will be a day when all that matters is God and what he is going to do with our law-breaking ways. But that day hasn't come yet. It's not today, or at least not so far. And today, we can get away with a lot. And the simple fact is we've lived thousands of those days, and we've gotten away with a lot. There's been so many of those days, <clears throat> in fact, that it's hard for us to even imagine what this day is going to be like. A day when we will stand before God and realize that he has been watching and listening to everything we've said and everything we've done for every single day that we've been alive. Suddenly, <clears throat> what was important to us the day or even the second before no longer matters. So when will this day occur? 
Well, only God knows. But this day comes in two forms. The first form is the preview form. We get a a preview look at the final day of the Lord. These preview days are days when God says enough and brings some form of judgment or consequence to bear in our particular situation. In the Bible, you will find this day of the Lord phrase used in several of these kinds of situations. There was a day of the Lord for the nation of Egypt, also for Assyria, and then for Babylon, three great empires that all came to an end. In history, the days that these empires collapsed are referred referred to the demise or the beginning of the end or the final end of these empires. But from God's perspective, these are days of the Lord when all of the wrong that had been done finally was brought to bear on the situation and these empires collapsed. Nebuchadnezzar, who was one of the kings of Babylon, encountered a day of the Lord in the book of Daniel. And on that day, God had been warning him about his arrogance. But finally on that day, God said, enough. And in one day, Nebuchadnezzar lost the kingdom. That's a preview day. They're painful days. They're big days to us. But these are days when God basically says, enough to a pattern of sin and gives us a taste of judgment. Have you encountered any days of the Lord, these kinds of days in your life, preview days? Days when God came crashing in and said, that's enough of that. I have. Those are not enjoyable days. But the purpose of those days is to bring God from the background, the obscure position that maybe we've assigned him to, and to bring him to the foreground where he belongs. So these preview days really are a gift. We don't perceive them as a gift because these are hard days. But they're a gift because they invite us to get ready for the final day of the Lord. Because after a preview day, there's still something you can do. After the final day, there's nothing more to be done. That's the second form, then, is the final day of the Lord. There's the preview days. Then there is, finally, the final day of the Lord. And that day will either be the day that we die or the day when Jesus Christ returns to wrap up history. None of us know when either of those days will be. So the only, the only way to plan for the final day of the Lord is to treat every day as if it just might be that day. Now that takes ongoing effort. To live our days with God as a priority in the, in the foreground of our life, not as an afterthought, not pushed to the background of our mind. So that's the first effect, is the priority effect. The second effect is the fire effect. Here's what it says, Malachi 4.1. We just read the, the words, surely the day is coming. It goes on to say, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant, every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. It will burn like a furnace on that day. Now, this is a clear reference to what the Bible teaches about hell. Now, to be honest, to talk about the day of our death is challenging enough. We go to great lengths to not think about our death 
as much as possible. We push it out of our mind in every way we possibly can. But then to go on and talk about hell, well, in our culture, that's, that's downright offensive. And that's because very few actually believe that hell is real or in their future. Gallup did a poll a few years ago about this in America. They found that 78% of all Americans believe they're going to heaven. 4% believe they're going to hell. 18% are undecided. I'd like to talk to those 18%, I wonder if, but... You know, but as much as our culture doesn't want to believe in hell, they, they cannot seem to get hell off their mind. I mean, honestly, as I listen to people talk out and about, I think hell is one of the most common words I hear. Second would be probably Jesus Christ, but hell would probably be the most common word. I often hear it used as an exclamation point. You know, what the hell and why the hell and how the hell and hell no or hell yes. Why not just yes or no or what or why add hell to it? Why not another word? And then we trivialize the gravity of hell by comparing our experiences in this life with hell. You know, people say they feel like hell or that they're as mad as hell or that they're as hot as hell <laughs> or that their job is hell. Why? Why is hell the common comparison? I mean, you have to wonder why. I mean, I know they're not thinking, but it's just kind of part of the expressions in our culture. But I think hell dominates the subconscious of our mind and therefore our vocabulary in our culture because down deep inside, we are very concerned that it just might be real. I mean, I wish that it wasn't. But I cannot ignore hell because Jesus taught that hell is real. You know, if I hadn't spent the better part of two years examining all of the evidence about Jesus Christ, if I hadn't done that, I could probably more easily relegate Jesus to being just another guy with a few wacky ideas like maybe hell. But if you've never done the research, I encourage you to do it because the evidence that Jesus is not just uh, another religious figure in the landscape of human history, but that Jesus is God in flesh and he really did rise from the dead. The evidence for that is very compelling. And what that means is I can't ignore what he said. He talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. And so the simple truth is you cannot believe in Jesus and not believe in hell, even if you don't want to believe in hell. They, they come together. Jesus didn't give us the option of believing in him and not believing in hell. So why fire? Well, fire is about determining what has eternal value and what doesn't. In the Bible, it's not primarily about torture. It's primarily about what lasts eternally and what doesn't. In other words, if it burns, it's temporary. It doesn't have eternal value. Fire tests that. You know, now we recycle our trash, but historically, trash has always been burned. In fact, the most common word that Jesus used for hell was an Aramaic word, Gehenna. And Gehenna was the local dump just outside of the city walls of Jerusalem that was always burning, always smoldering with trash on it. 
Now, we don't burn trash really now. I mean, every Thursday in our neighborhood, we gather up our trash, we place it on the curb. Now, how do we decide what goes in those trash cans? How do you decide what goes in the trash? Well, it's basically the things that no longer have any value to us. That's what the fire of God will reveal. The things that no longer have any value. The things that have no eternal value beyond this life. Now, we have eternal value. Not these bodies. These bodies will give out. They won't last. But our souls, the real us, the center of who we are, that has eternal value. But the problem for us is mixed inside of us, in our soul, are the the things that have no eternal value. Things like arrogance and doing what is wrong, doing evil. Now, God goes to great lengths to pursue us and to separate us from our arrogance and our evil. But if we keep rejecting him, then one day, after hundreds, maybe thousands of days of us saying with maybe our words and definitely with our lives that we want nothing to do with God, then one day God will finally say, okay, I will finally grant you your wish. And in that day, as it says, all the arrogant and the evildoer will be stubble. Right now, the arrogant are given status. And evildoers, we're not really even sure what evil is for sure anymore. I mean, there are a few things. But we keep defying God and changing what we think is evil about every five to ten years now. But that doesn't change what evil really is. And it says they will be stubble. Stubble is what's left behind after a field was burned. This was the way they prepared for the next planting, as they would burn the fields. And what was left was just the stubble. That's the fire effect. The third effect is the sunrise effect. Malachi 4, verse 2, the next verse says, But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. If you've ever seen a calf do that, they are happy to be free. But this is a reference to what was said just a few verses earlier about those who revere God, which means those who take God seriously. We talked about this last week, but let me read it again. Chapter 3 of Malachi 17 through 18 says, They will be mine. These are the people who revere God, says the Lord Almighty. In the day, this is the day we're talking about, when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. But before that day, we can't see the distinction, right? You can't see the difference between those who serve God and those who do not, between those who take him seriously and those who don't. I mean, when it comes to seeing the long-term impact, the eternal impact of doing what is right, it is nighttime right now. It's dark. You can't see it. I mean, sometimes you can see a little bit of benefit, but you really can't walk out and see, oh, look at this person's life. It's absolutely falling apart. They must be doing wrong. And look at this person's life. It's just amazing. They must be doing right. That's not really the case. We just can't see it because we're building our lives in the dark right now. But in that day, it says, the sun of 
righteousness, the son of doing right, will rise. S-U-N. And what was being built in the dark will now be exposed. It will be seen for what it really is. Both those who have built based on what God says is right and those who have not. Right now, you really can't see that. Then you can. On that day, you can. So right now, we are building our lives not in the visible dark, but in the eternal dark. In other words, you really can't see by looking at someone whether or not they're building something that's going to last for eternity or not. All you can see is the stuff that's going to burn. We cannot see the long-term effects of what we're building. And so as we build our lives, as we make our choices day by day, we have really two basic options, two building plan options. We can build by feel, you know, emotion, or we can build by faith. Building by faith means we take what God has said in the Bible as life-building plans. And we begin to construct our lives according to those plans. None of us do it perfectly, but we keep checking back with those blueprints and we keep making adjustments and we keep addressing things that are not lined up rightly. That's what it means to, be, to build a life by faith in what God has said. Or we can build by feel. That's the most common approach. We, we build our lives based on what we feel is right in the moment or what we feel is wrong in the moment, or what our culture feels is right, or what our culture feels is wrong, which keeps changing, or what we feel is really valuable, and what we feel maybe isn't as valuable. The problem with building our life by feelings is that feelings don't always tell us the truth. I mean, our feelings can deceive us. I want to show you a picture of a tire swing with one of my grandkids on it. This is a tire swing that I built for our five grandkids over Christmas. Now, when I built this tire swing, did I do it just by feel? No. I scoured the internet for all different plants. And I evaluated the plants, and I looked at reviews on the plants. And I selected this particular plan because of its safety and because it didn't have those chains that pinched little fingers. And then I built that plan, and I had my, it was, you know, there's a YouTube video on how to do it, and so I had my computer out there on the table, and I kept going back and checking step by step everything I did. What if I had just built it by feel? Well, that would have been a disaster, and it would have been dangerous for my grandkids. So I used plans. I say this because it is a disaster to construct our lives by feeling. Nobody can get their lives right by feeling. The problem is, is in the dark right now, people constructing their lives by feeling, no one else can say, that's a mess of a life. Because it's in the, we can't really see the long-term eternal impact. We can see some, but not enough. But when the sun comes up, on that day, when God's Son, the Son of Righteousness, comes up and rises, what we have constructed day by day, choice by choice, will be seen for what it really is. Not what we felt like it is, not what other people felt like it is, but what it really is. And those who have built by faith, using the plans that God has given us in the Bible, 
they will be very grateful in that day for every decision they made to do what God says is right rather than what they felt was right. When the sun rises on that day, those who have built by faith will be so grateful that they did. Now, in the dark, if you've been trying to build by faith, you've had your doubts. That's why it's faith. Because some of the days, building and doing what God says, it just doesn't seem like it's working out. And so you've wondered, are are these plans really right? Is the Bible really accurate? But in that day, you'll be glad you did. Now, this sunrise effect won't just be uh, a light effect. It will also come with a healing effect. It says the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Why? Well, because none of us have built a completely good life, and none of us have built a completely bad life. We've built better or worse. We have built lives that are a mixture of good and a mixture of not good. And so when the sun comes up and exposes everything we've built, there's going to be some that we're really grateful we did, and there's going to be others that are like, oh, that's an awful thing that I built. And that's why coming with the sun, there will also be healing in the wings of the sun. And that points to the final effect. That is the grace effect. We will all face this day. And the question, the big question on that day is, will we face that day with or without the grace of God? Will we be evaluated in that day with the forgiveness of God or having rejected the forgiveness of God and his grace? The next verse is in Malachi 4, 5 through 6, go on to say this. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. What does this mean? These are the final words in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. And they point to something that God will do in the New Testament part of the Bible. It will be done, as it says, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. The reason that something needs to be done before that day is because the Malachi audit has revealed the fact that no one will be able to survive the final audit. So what will God do? Well, it says he will send the prophet Elijah. Well, that was kind of confusing because Elijah had already been sent. In fact, by the time these words were written, he'd been dead for 500 years. He was one of God's many prophets, and like every prophet before him and the prophets after him of God, he was pretty much rejected by the people. God had sent Elijah, like all the prophets, to warn them and to encourage them to take God seriously, and for the most part, they'd said, no. So why is God going to send Elijah again? He, he already sent him 500 years earlier, and that didn't work. And so for the next 400 years, after these words had been written in Malachi, people wondered, who's Elijah? And then 400 years later, an angel spoke to a father. His wife was expecting a boy. That boy's name was John. 
later known as John the Baptist. This is what the angel said to his father before the birth of his son John in Luke 1.17. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom and the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The angel was quoting and explaining what we just read in Malachi. The final words in the Old Testament, the words that were hanging in everyone's mind, who's Elijah? And the angel was saying to John's father, the purpose of your son, John, will be to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You see, John the Baptist was to set the stage of preparation for the arrival of Jesus Christ. The one who would come to save us from the consequences of sin and to bring the grace of God. Jesus lived a perfect life that no one ever has. When he died a death he did not deserve to give us an eternal life that we have not earned, that we do not deserve. That, in a nutshell, is God's amazing grace. Giving us an eternal future that none of us deserve. So in that day, we will all stand before God with the ledger of our lives. There'll be no cooking of the books. There'll be no redacted parts of our life. And therefore, the bottom line for all of us will be red. It will be negative. And in that day, we will either get exactly what we deserve, or we will get what Jesus died to give us. And the choice is ours now to make. We don't make it then, we make it before that day. But the problem is, if a heart doesn't want to turn towards God now, well, then the grace that Jesus offers will be squandered. It won't be taken. And this is why John the Baptist came to prepare hearts to receive Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't do forced saving. Grace is not imposed. Grace is either accepted or rejected. So God sends prophets like Elijah to turn hearts towards him. John the Baptist was just the next in a long line of Elijah types that God would use to get us to turn back to him and to accept his offer of grace in Jesus Christ. But one of the most amazing things to me in what's said in Malachi and then what's repeated in Luke about this verse is one of the most powerful heart-turning prophets that God will use is our children. Remember, here's what it says. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. What does that mean? I mean, you have to ask, why not the mothers? It's speaking of the impact that children have on the hearts of, of fathers. It's kind of assumed that everyone knows the impact that they make on mothers. Children, of course, impact the hearts of mothers. That's obvious. But the effect that they have on men is nothing short of amazing. I mean, we can all be pretty cold and pretty selfish, but let's be honest. Us men, we can take cold and selfish to another level. But you put a newborn son or a newborn daughter into the, man, into the arms of a man and just watch what it does to that man's heart as he looks at his children. I mean, it's really easy 
for us all to forget God and his great power. But, you know, if you've ever seen the miracle of birth of one of your children, it's a holy moment. You have to stand back in amazement and realize that you are on holy ground. You are experiencing something beyond just biology. And that is an invitation to look up and consider the creator of all things. A child is a miracle of God. It's really hard to not see that. A child, in some ways, is an invitation for us to acknowledge the original creator. Now, having a child isn't going to save you as a man or a woman, but it's often a powerful invitation, a powerful preparation for the acceptance of the grace of God in Christ. But it's not just at the moment of birth. You know, then the child grows up and starts to ask you those big child questions that they always ask. Questions that, well, maybe you've put out of your mind long ago. Moral questions and God questions and where do we go when we die questions. They just won't shut up about this stuff. They just have big questions as they get older. And suddenly, you need to give them answers, not just opinions. I mean, maybe you and your friends during high school and college college talked about your opinions and you were impressed with how brilliant your opinions were, but now you're looking at your two-year-old and your three-year-old and you realize, i got to come up with the truth on this. I can't just pontificate to my child. i got to know what I'm talking about here. Suddenly, you need answers. Now, again, none of this is going to save you, but in the spirit and the power of Elijah... It is our children who often prepare our hearts to accept the amazing grace of God. You know, one of the main reasons over the 30 years here of Seabreeze, why people who have no church background or maybe have checked out of church long ago start coming to Seabreeze, the top reason is they have kids. It's not the only reason. It's the top one. And they suddenly realize that they need to give them a foundation that will last. I mean, I've had many, many people tell me, I wouldn't be here if my kid doesn't bug me every Sunday morning to come here. Oh, you've got a little Elijah hanging out at home. (laughs) The day that Kobe died was his final day of the Lord. For us, though, it was a preview day. A day that shocked us and still does. It reminds us all that one day, like Kobe and those other eight, we're going to stand before God to give an account of our lives. I watched the first Laker game after Kobe's death. I imagine many of you did. And I'll be honest, I was stunned how it began. Usher walked out on center court and began singing that great Christian hymn. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. That hymn is a Christian hymn. If you read through the lyrics, it's, it's all about the grace of Jesus Christ. This is at the Staples Center. I thought, you know, when it comes down to it, still, we have a little bit of a sense of what we really need. Here are the words that he sang at the beginning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch 
a sinner like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You know, facing the death, the shock of Kobe's death, there was this collective moment, and it may have gone already as people have moved on with their lives. But maybe there's still an opportunity for people to consider because there's this collective moment of clarity that on our final day, what will matter most is the grace of God offered in Christ and nothing else. This past Tuesday night, I was at a Ducks, the Ducks hockey game here in town when a St. Louis Blues player collapsed on the bench, had a heart attack, had to be revived. This is in the middle of the first period. And as news began to spread and they made an announcement of what was going on, 13, 14,000 people in that stadium just got quiet. I mean, we were at a hockey game. We were doing what you do at a hockey game, eat food and yell. And all of a sudden, we were all quite, we were stunned into silence as we saw a man's life hang in the balance. Now, Jay Bomeister recovered, was brought back to life by a defibrillator. He's in UCI Medical Center and is doing well. But after about 30 minutes of us all kind of quietly sitting there waiting and wondering what's going to happen, the game was canceled, postponed to a later date. And as we all exited, the organist played. Guess what? Amazing Grace. I've been to a lot of hockey games. I've never heard Amazing Grace. If you watch hockey, there's not a lot of grace <laughs> in hockey. But again, it was like, you know, we down deep inside. I mean, we've pushed it down. We've repressed it. We've gotten busy. We've gotten all our thoughts about other things. But down deep inside, when we see our own life flash before our eyes, down deep inside, we, we just still at least know a little bit that what we really need is, is the grace of God in Christ. So maybe you've heard these truths before. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've put them off. You know, you've gotten busy, you've gotten distracted. It's the way life is. But the fire is coming. And the sunrise is coming. And the stakes are eternal. It's your call, but I just want to implore you, do not put this off. So I want to give you a chance to accept God's amazing grace this morning. No pressure. Just a chance, just a moment before you rush off into the rest of your day and maybe forget most of what we've talked about this morning. Just a chance to bow before God and say, God, save me. So I'm going to pray a prayer of commitment to Jesus Christ. And if this prayer reflects what is true of your heart, I can't put words in your mouth, but if these words reflect what you really think and want to do, then pray these words along with me. And settle the fact that on that day, you're going to stand with God's grace, not without God's grace. So join me in prayer. Jesus, we come before you, and we admit that the great eternal fire that will reduce us all to stubble 
because we are sinners, is coming. The great sunrise that will expose all of our flaws is coming. And it really doesn't matter how many around us are pretending that this day will never come. We know better. And so today, Jesus, we, we bow before you and we ask that you would forgive us for the arrogance and evil that we have done. We bow before you, Jesus, as our Savior, the only one who can forgive us. And then we rise before you and decide to follow you as Lord. We make you the number one authority in our lives. We thank you for saving us from the destruction that we have all earned with our lives. We ask that you'd help us now to build a life that is pleasing to you with the days that we have left. We again pray for Kobe and all of the others that run the helicopter and their families, God. We have no idea what's true of them. But God, we pray that you would comfort those families. And I pray that the collective shock would awaken all of us to the fact that our day is coming. We thank you for your mercy and forgiveness and your grace. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.